It's my opportunity to begin to open up our new series, which I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And we entitled it Unceasing, as you'll see on the smart board in front of us. Unceasing. Hashtag. In fact, not all of you, I realize some of you that are older, you're not into social media as much as others of us. I've had to learn. You know, social media has been kind of a curve for me. And so I had to learn along the way in order to keep up with everything. Uh, but we use hashtags on social media. And what the hashtag does, it, it enables you to go to the hashtag, to push on the hashtag, whatever device you're using, be it your phone or your iPad or your computer, and then it throws you to a place where they gather up all the different posts of people who have used that particular hashtag. And so I'm just encouraging you that if you're on social media and you remember, just put hashtag unceasing. And you're going to see probably numbers of your fellow members uh, posting things that might be of great encouragement to you. And, and who knows what God might do? He might start some great prayer movement through some of the things that you and I are going to do this summer. So uh, we can only hope. I want, whether the globe gets it, our nation gets it, or our state gets it, I want us to get it. That we need to learn how to pray without ceasing. In fact, I, I, I could almost subtitle what we're going to dive into, Recovering the Priority of praying. Now, if I asked you, do you pray? I'm sure everybody would raise their hands because everybody's prayed at some time in their life. And if I were to go and ask the question, is prayer a priority or should it be a priority? I'm quite sure uh, you would be uh, equally as affirmative in that regard as well. But there's just something in my heart that God is saying to me. And as a pastor, one of the I don't know, it's a great challenge, I think. My wife, I think, understands this because she speaks as well. But you always wrestle with, is this for me or is this for everybody? You know, some of us are like, is this for me or, or, and so I need to keep it to myself? Or is this something that you're talking that needs to be declared at a wider level? And I have to parse that in my own life. Because sometimes God talks to me and it has nothing to do with you or it has nothing to do with the church. But sometimes he speaks to me and he says, my people need to hear this. And so uh, this is one of those times that I'm quite confident that uh, all of us together need to hear this. Now, I'm setting a few things up. I'm, I'm giving introduction to this whole series that we're going to spend all summer, and that's three months. So I believe we can spend one Sunday with me kind of setting some things up and giving introduction to some things that I believe will give context to what we'll be exploring all through the summer. Years ago, when I was called to the ministry in the church that I grew up in, the only way we knew how to describe the calling was that you were called to preach. That's just what we called it. Are you called to preach? You'd have services, literally, where we call them revival services. They were just extended meetings. But they, there were invitations on one of the night for people to come and, and yield themselves to full-time Christian service, a moment where God might call you to preach or call you to the ministry but most of the time it was a calling to preach and so that's that's the context of how i sort of got into the ministry because i sensed through some miraculous ways maybe sometime i can share that for those of you that have never heard that but god spoke to me in some miraculous ways that i was to be in the ministry communicating or preaching what i didn't realize at that time was is that yes god calls into the ministry 
But there are different names for that. There are apostles and there are prophets and there are evangelists and there are pastors and there are teachers. That's Ephesians chapter 4. And I did not understand at the beginning of my journey what God had called me to be. It wasn't until a little bit later, until I got in spirit-empowered circles, started understanding fivefold ministry, that I realized that God had called me to be really a prophet. Now, I understand you call me pastor because... I give leadership to the church, and that's what we're used to calling the person who gives leadership to a church. We're used to calling them the pastor. And that's okay, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I do have some pastoral attributes. Few, but some. But the fact of the matter is, if you studied the prophetic, you would find out that by grace and by calling, I probably fit into that lane a lot more uniformly than I do just by nature as a pastor. You know, there are certain features we all want in a pastor, I would suppose. And some of them I have, and some of them I probably have to work at, and some of them, there ain't no way it's going to happen. You just go on and keep trusting Jesus on that one, all right? But I'm a prophet by nature and by calling. And, and, and I started to think about that as this series began, and, and I just scratched out a few notes here. I said, a, a prophet by nature means that one has a passion for the recovery of those things that are lost. A prophet wants to recover things that have been lost. Even in a personal prophetic setting, if I prophesy over to you pers- personally, and I, and, 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 and I believe in God's going to open that on our prayer night, and God's going to open that more and more, I'm, I'm just committed to getting back into that lane. I've lost that lane for a few years, and I'm committed to getting back in that lane. But even if I were to prophesy over you individually, hear me when I say this, the primary reason of personal prophetic ministry is that something would ignite in you by his word that you would begin to recover that which has been lost. You've lost your destiny. You've lost your hope. You, you've lost the picture. You've, you've lost your direction. You've lost some guidance. You've... A prophet helps recover that which is lost. Now hear me, a prophetic voice will help the church recover things that it has left dormant or that it has lost. And so as we get into this, I got a feeling this prophetic thing in me is going to ignite. And when it ignites, it looks like at times it's mad. Now hear me, and you got to hear me, love me. I love you. Hear me. I am not mad at you. I'm not mad at any of you. But you're, I got a feeling you're going to sense the passion of the Lord at times. Don't mistake that for, wow, he's aggravated. You know, you know me, I can yell. I'm, when I yell, I'm excited or I'm passionate. I also want the best for you. I want the best for the church. I want the best for me. I want, I want the best. And if we've lost something that needs to be recovered and we're not going after it, then we kind of need exhorted, don't we? I'm just kind of setting some things up because as I began to write, I started to feel, I started to feel that passion again come back to me. There's a British evangelist by the name of T. Austin Sparks who said these words, He said, the function of a prophet has almost always been that of recovery. If something has been lost, God sends his prophets to recover it. You read through the scripture, even Peter on the day of Pentecost, where he talked about seasons of refreshing coming from the Lord, that that all things might be restored that had been spoken of by the prophets. So 
These are some of the things that are going to happen, I believe, in these next few months. We're here to put out a plumb line. Prophets remind us that there is a plumb line of righteousness that God is going to call us always back to. Hey, everyone in the room, I'm going to do some corporate confession for you. Everyone in the room drifts from the plumb line of God's righteousness or his standards or his expectations. Now, in a, here's the problem. In America today, when people drift from the plumb line, we're, we're kind of getting a message that we're supposed to run to them and say, there, there, I can identify with you. And so everybody's away from the plumb line, identifying with each other, compassionate with each other, walking with each other, journeying with each other, sometimes for decades, a ways away from the plumb line. Hear me when I say that. We do go reach for people. We do love people. We do have compassion on people. But all of that is to pull people back to the plumb line. Are you following me? That's where the will of God is. That's where the blessing of God is. And that's where God wants us to be. And that plumb line, which has recently arrested my attention, is the plumb line of praying. Praying. Some of you may remember the name of the famous South Korean minister. Uh, he changed his name. It used to be Paul Yonggi Cho, but he changed it to David. His name was David Yonggi Cho, and he pastored uh, the largest church in the world at one time, and I believe it may still be. It was the full gospel church of Seoul, Korea. At the time of his transition, he has now transitioned it to another pastor, but at the time of his transition, it was numbered at 830,000 people were members of that church. Now, wouldn't you say that's, that's quite a number of people, 830,000 people. I would guess that that may be the size of the Tri-County area. That's if every person in Berkeley, Dorchester, and Charleston County went to the same church. That was the size of that full gospel church. And he tells the story uh, later, uh, the church growth expert, and I forget his name, uh, who was there with him for years, attested to this fact that if any one thing grew that church, uh, chose church, he would say it was that his people learned to pray. I had the opportunity in one of my uh, mission trips, I was to Mongolia, that on the way back, we stopped in Inchon, and I was able to grab a bus, and we spent probably 36 hours in Seoul, and I stayed at the hotel right across the street from Full Gospel Temple, uh, Cho's Church. And uh, I was there with a traveling companion, and we were able to tour the church. And to this day, now understand, in his church, every day... Since the beginning of his church, which is now probably 50 years old, people have been praying all through the week in his church. And so we wanted to see. So we entered into the church. It was just a normal middle-of-the-day week, maybe like a Thursday or something. And there were people still to this day gathered, a small group of people gathered in that church praying down at the altars. Uh, Neat-looking church, neat, you know, interesting to hear it. And then we caught the bus. And we caught the bus in order to go to Prayer Mountain because the most notable thing of Cho's ministry was that he was able to, to purchase this mountain outside of Seoul, Korea. And there on this mountain, 
he called it Prayer Mountain. Now, Cho, you know, he's written numbers of books. And one of the things he had written in one of his books were these words. He says, he says, Americans will give their money, they will sing songs, they will build buildings, and they will preach, but they will not pray. That's what Cho said. And so he purchased a mountain, and on this mountain, and I was able to go see it, uh, there were these grottoes, they called them grottoes, which were these, they, they almost looked like bunkers, these, these cement brick bunkers that were built kind of into the side, and, and the doors were big enough, it was like submariner, you know, the door was big enough that you kind of had to, to kneel and, and, and get yourself into this grotto, but there were literally, I don't want to embellish, but there were at least scores and maybe hundreds of these grottoes in the mountain. And I'd heard about them for years when people of his church would go to Prayer Mountain and they would go to these grottos and there would be a small altar in this grotto and you'd open this small door and you would, you would make your way, it would cause you to, to bend down and get into this grotto and there people would pray and they would pray for hours and they told the stories of how you could go to Prayer Mountain and you could hear the intercession reverberate out of those grottos. And I'd heard the stories about all of that in the 70s and, and some in the 80s and I'd read Cho's books and I heard all of those things and I told you once the story about when he would call the church to pray and everybody would stand and when he said, let us pray, there would just be this rumble that would come out of the congregation until finally he had a little bell. And if you'd see the size of the church, it'd almost make you laugh because it had to have had, you know, 10,000 seats in the church and he'd have to stand up and ring this bell to get everybody to stop praying. And so I wanted to see this. It was notable. It was well known. But I got to Prayer Mountain via bus. Now listen, it was even cool in the bus because they were playing this worship music and you could hear the people sing. None of this was orchestrated. And of course, you know, I was, I was there with, with a fellow pastor and, 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 you know, we were, we were these, both of us were bald. We were these two bald guys in the midst of all of these Korean faces, this, in the bus, and they're singing, and we're just, we don't even know what they're singing, you know, it's just, we're taking the ride to Prayer Mountain. And we got there, and uh, we were excited, you know, nothing really was in English, and so we're trying to figure our way around everywhere, and we got to these grottos that we'd heard so much about, and had, had longed to see, and, and to, to be inspired by, really, is why we wanted to go. And they were all run over with weeds and vines. They were in disrepair. The doors were chipped. Paint was peeling. There were areas you couldn't get to some of the grottos. They'd become dangerously, you know, it was just dangerous to go there because of the disrepair. There was no sound, there was no, there was no intercession that was going up. It was, it was just this picture that really was surprising to both of us because we just had talked about it, we had longed to see it, and then when we got there it was like, you're kidding me. And, and it's interesting to me, the fact of the matter is, is that somewhere, somewhere in that, and there's no criticism of Cho at this point, but somewhere in the fervency of what built 
that place and in the fervency of what was established in that church and in that area and in that place somewhere somewhere it was lost and i guess the scariest thing was this and that is you could lose all that prayer emphasis and your church can just keep right on going does that frighten you it should because it says something about your life. You could start your Christian journey praying and interceding and seeking God and you're into it and you're doing your devotions but something happens along the way and it just finally fades off your screen but your life just keeps on going. Not ever realizing what's been lost because you're just going on like nothing has even changed. Oh, oh, but something has changed. And there comes a moment when that change will be all too evident. And then suddenly you awaken and you realize, I've let go of the things that made my life really work. And even in church, we've let go of the things that maybe have made his church work. I, I believe the picture I saw that day on Prayer Mountain was really the picture and the plight of the American church in particular. Our prayer life has to be recovered. Satan is winning contest after contest in our nation, in many of our lives, and he wins it by default. Because we don't hit our knees, we don't seek the Lord, we don't intercede, we don't cry out, and we find ourselves in the mess we're in. It would be impossible, I would suppose, for me to calculate the failures, the ruined reputations, the defeats, the broken homes, the other tragedies that could have been avoided had we just prayed. How much destruction even judgment might have been turned had we just prayed. I am guilty. You are guilty. But my mission and our mission through the summer is not to pound you with guilt. I, I don't want to pound you with guilt. I want to arm you with a vision. I want to arm you with a mission. I, I want to arm you with an expectancy and an excitement. I want to arm you with the possibility of what might happen if we recovered the very key to everything. And so the message today, that was just the introduction. The message today I've entitled, Restoring the House of Prayer. Restoring the House of Prayer. I want to read to you a familiar passage out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Most of the time this gets read during Easter week. As Jesus is making his, what we have called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He is entering into Passion Week. He is about ready to endure the cross, be buried the resurrection accounts and all that will take place. He's on the brink of that. Most of us know the story very, very well. But I want to read it to get it in our hearing. And then I want to just sort of unpack it, deconstruct it a little bit. And maybe make some prophetic application that will help give us the springboard, I think, 
we're going to need in order to get into this summer and the springboard that can get us into the deep end of God's presence. This is what Matthew writes as he reflects upon the triumphal entry. It says in Matthew 21, verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God. This is after he's ridden into town. He goes into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it, what? A den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, restoring the house of prayer. You know, the primary mission of Jesus, we all know, was redemptive in as much as that he came to save sinners. He came in order to forgive us for our sins. He came in all of the aspects of the atonement and of that none of us would argue, and it is a priority to be sure. But in the major mission of Jesus, in the major mission of the cross and the atonement, I believe were numerous, important, and, and for lack of a better term, I will call them submissions. I think one of the submissions of, of the overall mission of redemption was listed here when it says that he wanted to restore his house to be the house of prayer. Now, I started with this burden to pray, and as it began to fall on me, reflecting about the place of prayer in my own journey with the Lord. I started to think about actually prayer with regards to how it affected in, in corporate church life. I was saved, as most of you know, in the Church of the Nazarene. In the Church of the Nazarene, it has its historical roots in what was called the Old Holiness Movement. The Holiness Movement was a part of the Pentecostal Movement, believe it or not. They were all mixed together in the early parts of the 20th century. What took them different directions were that the Pentecostal movement believed in the manifestation of the speaking in tongues and some of the holiness movement didn't believe in that particular manifestation. And so they split and, and one went the, this, this holiness direction and the other one went holiness as well because there's a lot of the same features in both. But, but they had as one of their primary features the, the speaking in tongues. But, but the group that I grew up with, the Nazarenes, they had in their history a history of praying. In fact, there would be all sorts of historical anecdotal stories that we would be told all through church life as well as our education life studying for the ministry of how prayer was such a vital part of the early Nazarenes. And we would have prayer meetings. People would take off time from work and they would go to what we called camp meeting where you'd go out to the old brush arbor, they called it, where they try to recapture the days when preaching took place outside and they might have what they used to call an old tabernacle. I remember it was more like a barn. And, and the doors would, all the doors would come up uh, on the outside and, and it would literally, it would become this just sort of like wooden tent that you'd uh, sit under and you'd listen to preaching three times a day for a solid week. It'd be 80 degrees or, or warmer in the summertime. So camp meeting always meant that you sweated, you know. 
and, and, but, but you still had to dress up to go to church. So you would wear your, your Sunday clothes and the preachers would wear their Sunday clothes. And when they sweat, I'm telling you, I can remember preachers in, in a coat like this that it would literally change its color because they'd sweat so profusely. And so that's what we grew up. But you'd have prayer meeting. You'd have prayer meeting before the first service and, and, the, and the midday service and the end service. And then you'd pray at night. And that's all you did out at the old camp meeting is you'd pray and pray and pray. And, of course, the purpose of camp meeting in the Church of the Nazarene was to get everybody in the churches fired up again, let them go back to their home church, and, and uh, they would begin prayer meeting there. And we always had what was called a midweek service, but we called it prayer meeting night. That was midweek service. But I can remember even in the early 80s when I started to pastor, and I pastor now for 35 years. I figured it up. This September, I will have been a pastor for 35 years. And I can remember back in those early days, even then when we'd have prayer meeting. Now, it was already beginning to have a poor trajectory, but I can remember certain things. We'd come to church in the middle of the week, and you'd sing some songs, and then everybody would turn around where they're seated. Now, this would be really, this would really test your commitment to prayer here. Because we have these cement floors. But you'd turn around, and they were carpeted at least then, but you'd turn around right in your seat, and you'd, we'd all pray turned around in our seats like that, and people would just, on our knees, and people would just begin to, to intercede. I mean, it was just open intercession, and you could hear the rumbles. And at times there was great rumble, and at times there wasn't. And, and you'd do that for maybe 30 minutes or so, and, and then, of course, you'd have a, a, a teaching time. And what eventually happened, though, like it does in so many places, is that prayer time suddenly gives way to teaching time because we're convinced that it's easier to teach somebody into some things than it is to pray people into some things. Let that sit for just a moment. We think it's better if you get more information to help you than it is for you to maybe get on your knees and cry out to God and say, help me, O Lord, in this. That that's... Now, that doesn't mean teaching's wrong or bad. I'm teaching you now. So it's not bad. But there's a, subtle, there's a subtle shift that takes place. What's that shift that takes place that says this? Oh, oh, it's just prayer meeting. Ain't no teaching going on. He ain't going to preach any. It's just prayer meeting. I mean, why pray? I mean, I, you can pray anywhere. I pray in my car all the time. I pray in the shower. In fact, I have so efficiently designed my life that right now I can get ready for work and I can pray at the same time. So you see, I, I'm, I'm just really efficient now. I can pray driving. I've learned how to pray with my eyes open. And so I've got my whole life designed in such a way and, and we've convinced ourselves we're just efficient in it. Oh yeah, I pray all day. Every time I'm, I got a little lull at lunchtime, I'm able to pray a little bit. And hear me when I say this, I'm not, I'm not demeaning these things. I'm not demeaning those moments that all of us use to just breathe a prayer up to God. Those moments we say, Lord, hear me. Lord, know my day. Lord, be a part of this meeting I'm about ready to run in. I'm not demeaning it. I'm simply challenging the notion, and I think all of us, that says somehow or another, that's what this is. Or it's enough. Hear me when I say this. And I remember growing up, in a church, I remember, you've heard me tell the stories at Mid-American Nazarene University. I'd only been saved a year or two. And I was studying for the ministry and I didn't know any other way to do it except to do it that way. And then I got, I got brought into this because I was meeting the guys in the religion department. And so they wanted to start that Friday night prayer meeting that I've talked about over and over. And the reason I talk about it so much is because 35 plus years later, I'm still impacted by it. 
So I apologize for having to hear my stories over and over and over again. But when you hear it come out of my heart, it's because it impacted me at such a profound level. That on Friday nights, this group of college guys, at starting at 10.30 on a Friday night. Think about that. You're in college. Of all the things you could do on a Friday night, starting at 10 o'clock, one of them isn't going to a prayer meeting. Even when you're a religion major. But yet we decided to do it. Some of our reasoning in that was probably convoluted. We thought that if we showed God that we were super serious, we were going to choose a really, a really terrible night like Friday when you, know, you were off of school and you wanted to do fun things or if you had a girlfriend and you could go out and date and all the things that were you know, just normal, but we were really serious. We were going to show God. We're going to give up our most opportune moment because we are serious. Now, I, maybe that was convoluted and stupid, but that's just how we thought at that time and we just did it. And so we prayed, and I'll never forget, it started at 10.30, and it ended whenever you wanted to leave, or it ended when it ended, and there were lots of Fridays for three years of Fridays when we would gather. It started out with five, I don't remember if there were five of us or seven of us, there was, there was a number of us. I remember it wasn't six, because if there had been a six, we'd have, been, we'd have, we'd have found somebody, because six is the number of a man. Um, so there was either five or seven and, but there was, there was a moment in the fervency of that prayer meeting that there were, I, I don't want to embellish again, but there had to have been a couple hundred people that crammed into a college room in Smith Building, room 123, that probably sat 80 students. There had to have been a couple hundred people that crammed in there at one time for the sheer purpose of praying. And I learned something at that moment that, again, through 35 years, you, you, I've lost. I shouldn't have lost. But somewhere I lost it. And that is, yes, you can pray something to grow. I know we don't believe that in America. I understand it. We believe, we believe everything else will work except praying. But that's what God showed me in those early days. And all of those experiences impressed upon me the significance of praying. And it undoubtedly also created the hunger inside of me, eventually, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I often wonder now if those days weren't some of the very days that there's this hunger starting to be created in me that God moved upon in order to baptize me in His Spirit. So much so that after the baptism with the Holy Spirit and realizing that the church I was in, and again, I'll say it out loud, it's not, it's not in any way impugning the church of the Nazarene, but I understood that when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, that wasn't going to work anymore in those circles. What God was working in me just wasn't going to fit. And so I'm not mad at them. I mean, I mean at first I didn't know that I understood it all, but I'm really not mad at them. I just understand that sometimes you just don't fit. And so I wasn't fitting. And then I remember that when we began to reach out to some people and we reached out to a pastor that was down in Oakland, California, because that's where we were living at the time. His name was David Kitely. The church was called Shiloh Christian Fellowship at that time. David Kitely's mom was Viola Kitely, who was a famous pioneer in the Northwest United States of the Latter Rain Movement. And people will tell you the Latter Rain Movement were a bunch of heretics, but they haven't taken the time to study much about it because the Latter Rain Movement may have had its excesses like every movement has. And by the way, I don't care if you're Baptist, you've got your excesses. You can be Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, and everybody's got a problem in their tribe somewhere. 
The latter rain movement, though, began to usher in in the 1940s and 50s the things of the Spirit in an amazing way. His mom was a part of that. She literally started the church there in Oakland, and he became the pastor of it. Again, this is in the mid-1980s. And so we reached out to him, and uh, he began to work with us. He loved us. He helped us. He, he tried to connect with us. He was used in so many profound ways in our life. But what he wanted us to do, and I'm just reflecting on my life, was to connect with a guy that some of you will remember his name. His name was Larry Lee in Rockwall, Texas. And Larry wrote the book, Could You Not Tarry One Hour? In fact, Larry was probably what we might call, or I would at least call, the apostle of prayer at that particular time, the mid-1980s. There was an anointing on his life to declare the message of praying to the church again. And God was using him, praying in some amazing ways. That Rockwall Church grew into the tens of thousands in the 80s based on people praying. Now hear me when I say this, I'm not getting to the place where I'm talking to you about a church growth method. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes you begin praying and it'll be a, 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 it'll be a church trimming moment. I'm simply saying to you, there comes a moment when you have to ask yourself the question, what is it that God has asked us to do? But it didn't work for us anyway to connect with Larry and so we went to South Carolina and most of you, if you remember those days, unfortunately, Larry had uh, an expose that took place on ABC's 2020, which was unfortunate because I don't really think he did anything wrong. But prayer and the voice that God was using to remind his church to pray was taken out. That's what the enemy wants. There's something that's going to be recovered and the enemy sends his forces and he says, let's take that out. And so as spirit-filled people, we began, we began, I think, to drift from some things that God had used us to recover. And I often have wondered now if that was the start of the shift we now lament in church life. When we started to lose the concept of prayer, we had to think of something else. And so instead of letting the church be the church, instead of praying and seeking God and becoming the conduit through which God moves through in order to reach a lost and, and dying and hurting world, what we did is we shifted into all things natural. What can we do to appeal to the natural man? What can we do to be sensitive to those who are seeking the Lord? What can we do to present ourselves in a way that looks a lot like the world so they can kind of connect with us and don't think we're such... A bunch of crazies or foreigners. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll even change the language that we use. Maybe we won't use terms like born again anymore. We won't use terms like regeneration and sanctification or covenant or all these churchy words. We'll just, we'll just try to, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's just hide all of the church and all the things we do in the church. Let's just hide this stuff back in that room back there and, and somehow we'll get them here. And then when we get them here, we'll kind of sneak this other stuff in on them. And they'll never see it coming. We'll dance for them and we'll entertain them and we'll sing the songs that they can stomp their feet to and snap their fingers to. And they'll like it. It'll sound and look and be just like... And, and I, but we won't tell them all this other stuff, but we'll get them to it somehow. 
Somehow we're going to get it to them. In fact, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll offer a thousand things to do on every other night of the week. A thousand things to do and surely they'll stumble into one of those classrooms. And then they'll hear about it and then they'll really become one of us. Because we sure don't want to pray. I've often wondered if that's what happened with the trajectory. I think, I think as I read that passage in Matthew 21, I honestly think Jesus may have thought something like that. In those days, God's house was the temple. And the temple had experienced a shift that Jesus had come to correct. Now, the temple of old and the church of today have some connection at this point, do they not, in application. Both are God's house, and both are in dysfunction. Would you agree that the temple is in dysfunction? I mean, you don't have to go to seminary to see there's some dysfunctional things going on. You know the story of all that was going on outside the temple. And I'm here to tell you that as as you look at this story and you understand the analogies that begin to connect to the modern day church. Now, hear me. I'm not mad at you. I'm not really. I'm not mad. I'm just making connections for all of us to see that these connections are the fact that that both are dysfunction, uh, but dysfunctional in America today. And I believe that not only did this house that we read to you needed to recover something but that the house of God in America, the house of God in South Carolina, the house of God in Charleston, and our house needs to recover some things. Now, this wasn't a novel idea that Jesus was coming up with. It wasn't something that Jesus stepped in and nobody knew it. And he's just, you know, he's kind of ripping them a new one because, you know, they just, you know, they didn't know it. No, the fact of the matter is, in Isaiah 56, verse 6, uh, let me read this to you. It says, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. Isaiah is actually prophesying of the Gentiles. That's you and me. Coming into the house of the Lord. He said, I'll bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my what? House of Oh my. So Isaiah's prophecy was, I'm going to bring people in, but I'm bringing them to my house of prayer. Isn't that cool? I I, I wanted to look at the etymology of that word, and I couldn't find it anywhere that the etymology of that word was the house of entertainment. I, I know it's the secret Hebrew. Maybe it says the house of... A thousand programs. No, it was a house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I always think about that hospital prophecy says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. How's he going to do it? By bringing, he's bringing them to the house of prayer. That's where Jesus 
got all of this. Now let's just, let's talk about the steps to dysfunction. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna use this summer. I'm so excited because I said, Lord, I'm a part, I'm a part of dysfunction. You know, you'll never get healed, you'll never get right, you'll never get whole until your first step is this. You say, I am dysfunctional. Now, I understand in our faith-based confession understandings, we never are to say anything negative about ourselves, and I get that. I understand that we're to, we're to say the positive promises of God, and I believe that, and I teach that, but you, you can't get right until you understand where you're wrong. There is, that's why there's repentance built into salvation. Because repentance is at least the acknowledgement that I've not been doing things right and something needs to change so I can begin to do it right. So I, I, I talk about this because I think it's important just to get it out there. And I want to talk about the steps of dysfunction. We tend to forget, this is what I think we tend to forget, and that is the temple was God's idea. Now, when you see the picture of it, when Jesus shows up, you say to yourself, what a mess. The temple is a mess. In fact... It's been 2,000 years for us, and because it's been 2,000 years of Christian established revelation, we look at the temple and we automatically think the temple is deficient because it was a temple. And of course, we understand all of what Jesus did and how he, how he uh, became the fulfillment of all of these things. But before you get there, hear me when I say this, the temple was God's idea. God established the temple. God established the sacrificial system. God established the priesthood. God established the furniture. God established it, and when it was right, the glory of God would fall upon it to such a degree that you couldn't stand. You'd slash, you'd slash a sheep's throat. You'd spill that gory blood everywhere, and God would fall. This was God's idea. Just like the church is God's idea. The church isn't plan B. The church isn't some parentheses that God has set up in history that he's just going to kind of endure until we get raptured out of here and then he can get back to plan A, which is Israel. Listen, I love Israel. And Israel has a plan. But hear me, the church is not plan B. The church is still God's plan A, especially for us Gentiles. So the temple was his idea, the church is his idea, and sometimes I think we just automatically look at the temple and go, pish posh. You know, they didn't have revelation, not like we have revelation today. Listen, man, that was God's idea. But something happened to screw up God's idea. Just like something has happened to screw up God's idea with his church. Are you following me? It's become dysfunctional. I've asked myself this question. We call... In 2018, something, the church. But my question is, are we really calling it the right name? Is it the church or is it not the church? It's just like when Jesus shows up. He says, I know you call this the temple, but is it really the temple? Well, obviously not. Because Jesus was really quite irritated. So they're calling it one thing, but Jesus says, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but it ain't it. And I've asked myself the question, we call things the church, but is it really the church or do we just assume it's the church? Or have we so accepted our dysfunctions? 
Have we so accepted what we have on the landscape? Have we so accepted our existence in what we are doing that we just slap church on it because we don't know what else to slap on it? But I wonder if God is saying, I know that's what you call it. And of course, he's gracious and long-suffering. Don't misunderstand me. But he says, you're calling it something that right now it's not. All right, I'm passionate, right? I'm not mad at you. I'm just, I'm just unveiling some things. There are three things that happened that brought them into this dysfunction. The first one I call commercialization. Now, I'm not going to spend time unpacking the picture that you already know. What were they doing? People would bring their sacrifices... And, and they had people there that would tell them their sacrifice wasn't good enough. So they had to exchange the sacrifice that they brought to give unto the Lord with this new sacrifice. And so it was kind of like trading cars. You had to trade in your old lamb for the new lamb. And you had to add a little extra to it. And if you didn't have enough to add to it, you could get a loan. And so they were working out this stuff so you could get the right lamb in order that supposedly it would get you to the presence of God in a better way, or you'd get forgiven in a better way. You, you know these are the things that were going. They exchange your money, money changers. And all of this commercialization was going on. This is the part. I'm gonna, I, guys, right now, just inside, say, say to yourself, pastor's getting ready to shave me real close. <laughs> Hear me when I say this, because this is stuff God talked to me this week as I'm writing this stuff. I never thought of this before. We always... We always go after the spiritual leadership of Israel when we read that passage. We say to ourselves, God, they had so corrupted the temple. And the fact is, a lot of things do stem from leadership. And I'll be the first one to say that those old Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they they were a corrupt bunch. We aren't letting them off the hook in one way, shape, or form. But I want you to hear me when I talk about commercialization. I asked the question, why, why did the commercialization take place? Did just one day it happen? Because this is what we do in the church. We do the same thing in the church. I, I read this all the time. I read, you know, I love reading and I read blog sites and the social media site and, and, and I want to stay in the loop to everything. But I am amazed at how many people just go after pastors left and right. And hear me when I say this, there are pastors that need to be gone after. Because there's a lot of dysfunction that can be laid at their doorstep, just like at the doorstep of the leadership of Israel. We look at them and say, it's just, I've had people say that about me. It's just Pastor Baird is all about the money. It's all about the money. That's what you'll hear all the time. It's all about the money. And, and, And this is what I say all the time. How many of you enjoy the air conditioning this morning? Well, you're right. It's all about the money because I got the bill paid. Somehow, some way. I mean, people don't think about that. They just, they just see what they want to see. Most of the people who start yakking about it's all about the money are the ones who aren't tithing anyway. That's what I found through the years. Tithers are usually joyful and they don't think about it because they understand it's as under the Lord anyway. But are there responsibilities of the leadership? Sure, there's responsibilities. Are there dysfunctional ones out there? Sure, there are. Are there guys out there wanting to get their $58 million jet? Yes, there are. I, you know, I, I, under, I, get, I get there's plenty of reasons, but have you ever thought as to why the church got commercialized? Have you ever thought why they had to sell things in the temple? Have you ever thought about why they had to do all this? I can tell you the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
We're certainly at fault, and maybe we can put most of the fault at them. But I can guarantee you this, that one of the reasons the church gets commercialized is because the pew is as dysfunctional as the pulpit. It's because they weren't bringing their best sacrifices. They were bringing shabby sacrifices. And the priest started looking at it saying, what are we going to do? They're bringing their shabbiest sacrifice. They're not bringing their best. Malachi tells us this truth. He tells us that the people were bringing that which was weak and sickly. They're saying, why should I give them my best animal when I can give them my sickest animal? And it's, they're going to die anyway, so I might as well keep the bigger one. And so they're, listen, you can blame the religious leadership, but don't blame them too far until you understand how this stuff gets to happening. Why do, why do churches do fundraising banquets? Why do churches, they try to fundraise off donuts and Coca-Cola and They'll try to fundraise everything. They'll send the kids out and they'll want them to sell Christmas paper. And why does the church do all these things? Why do we come up with every gimmick in the world? Why do we do that? You know why we do that? It's because part of the reason is because we're trying to figure out how to keep this temple rolling. Following me? Well, that's exactly so. It, it, and, and all of a sudden it, it gets convoluted even in all of that. Now hear me. So do le does leadership... Have to repent? Absolutely. But all they're doing is leading the way for everyone else's repentance. Because what happens out of that commercialization is, when it begins to work, comes exploitation. Sure, they were being exploited. <laughs> Things got twisted around and the people of God were being exploited. They were being sold a bill of goods. They were being used for what could be got, gotten out of them. They were being exploited. But it was working. See, it works. It's pragmatic. The temple doors stay open. The people really don't know much other than this. They're going through the motions. We're getting the bills paid. Everything's happening. But they don't understand that the whole thing is dysfunctional and it becomes an accepted aberration. This temple that everyone says, well, that's the temple, is be this is what is considered normal now in Jesus' day. Are you following me? That's normal, and Jesus steps into it all, and he goes, this ain't normal, folks. I hate to dump the apple cart. I hate to whip everybody. I, I hate that I'm about ready to pop your balloon, but this ain't normal. It's an aberration. Pastors just preaching kind of what was being downloaded this week. Have we developed the label normal on something that's an aberration. Well, you say, Pastor, then what must happen to restore the house of prayer? I'm going to give you just a couple things. I know I know. I got the preaching here a little long. A lot of introduction, huh? I put down four quick things I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to help me, help Bishop Fred. And, and, and let me just say something to you. When I, I, this is what's interesting to me, that 80% that of all churches are under 300. 80% of all churches are under 300. I know people, people are mind-blown when they begin to consider numbers. And do you know that only 1% of the churches are 1,000 or more people in it? So do you realize how most churches are right where we're at? This is, 
You know, people say, well, there ought to be more, there ought to be this. You know why? It's because we've, we define normal as 10,000 people showing up. That's what we've defined as normal, not realizing that 80% of churches look a lot like us today. A lot like us. But, but we've been seduced into a new normal that isn't really normal. And I'm suggesting that if we're going to get back to God's normal, that we're going to have to recover the foundations of the faith. One of the major ones is we've got to pray. Pray, pray. And there are four things that I'm going to write down here for you real quick, and you can write them all down. What must happen to restore the house of prayer? Number one is this. We must hear the call to intercede. Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer. The fact of the matter is we, all of us, I understand there, there are people who have, they feel like, a specific call to intercede, but I'm here to tell you all of us, it's, it's like witnessing your faith. There's no one here that has a special call to it and everybody else just leaves witnessing up to them. All of us have a call, ought to hear the call, to intercede. Prayer meetings are rarely seen as important. I'll never forget, those of you that have been with Legacy, there was a, a man and a wife from Ghana. You remember Emmanuel Kular? You remember Emmanuel? Emmanuel told the story one time to me that when he was in Ghana, that when church started, of course, church started like the regular time, like about 10 or 10.30, but they, they had prayer from 5 a.m. to church start time. And if, and if you weren't there at 5 a.m. in Ghana for the start of church, the pastor would lock the door. And if you showed up at 5.01 you would have to sit on the porch of the church until they were done with prayer meeting and then you'd be let in. Now, isn't that winsome? Do you understand that's what goes on? And yet you say, well, that's crazy. So crazy that Africa is now becoming the new Christian continent. We have to hear the call to pray. We have to pray. When will we pray? Will we pray together? Hey, listen to this. Every time I look in the Bible or in historically, whenever God moved, it was when his people together gathered to pray. I know you can pray at home. I know you can pray in the shower. I know you can pray at your breakfast table. I know you can pray in the car going down the road. I pray in all those times myself. But, they, but the Holy Spirit came when they were all gathered together in one place and in one accord. And you look through scripture and you're going to begin to find then most moves of God happened when God's people got together to pray. I'm glad you're praying, but you need to consider, am I going to be a part of the move of God or not? The second thing I put up there is cleansing. The temple incident was actually, I didn't know this till this week, but you can look this up in John's gospel chapter two. Jesus had already cleansed the temple once. This was the second cleansing. I never, I never thought of that. I just ran across that. So this is the second time Jesus shows up to try to cleanse the temple. And I started just thinking about how Jesus was committed to cleansing the temple in order to recover it to be the house of prayer. And I just started to think how we need this internal cleansing as to what we think is the church and the gathering in America. Prayer is the discipline of our faith. Prayer is the discipline of our faith. Have you ever watched a Muslim and what they do when it comes to prayer six times a day. It doesn't matter where they are. I've seen them in airports throw out their 
their rug or their carpet and they'll kneel down and face Mecca and they don't give a flip. They'll begin to pray to their false god. There's something in them that has, has reached the place where they said, this is a part of our faith. This is a part of what we do. This is not optional equipment. This isn't something that I can just, this is, this is something that must happen. We don't, we don't have that in Christianity. We don't have any sense of that. And we need a cleansing, a cleansing from our thoughts in this matter, a cleansing that we don't think it's that important, a cleansing that somehow I can get by without it, a cleansing that I'm smart enough or I'm ingenious enough or I can, I can navigate life good enough. I'm just this really adept, sharp, skillful, intellectual, educated man and I can make it through life and I don't think I have to pray all that much. You are a candidate for a fall. Yes, you are. We need cleansed from this stuff to once again pray. Number three is this, conviction. I put down conviction. Do we have the burden or the strongly held belief that prayer is important? If I ask for everybody, and let's just lift our hands. I'm going to give you a hint. The answer to this question is yes, and you need to raise your hand. All right, I'm giving you a hint. Do you believe in the power of prayer? Raise your hand. Then why is it neglected and overlooked and avoided? Why do we see it as a time waster? Why do we lower its priority? Why? I'm not mad at you. I'm just asking questions. I figure if God is asking me these questions through the week, why should I be the only one twisting in my seat? I mean, I want you to join me in all of this twisting. And then finally and lastly, number four, and I'm landing consecration we must sanctify ourselves to this purpose it is true i'll say it over and over again and i'm confident of this point and and i'm affirming you at this point i i believe all of you are praying i believe all of you are praying in in all sorts of times in all moments of your life I remember years ago, we were asked, I asked my pastor at the Church of the Nazarene, revival was coming, and we wanted to pray all night before the revival, and he really didn't want to open the church up for us. Probably we were a bunch of college kids, and he was probably worried that we'd destroy the place. But he said these words, he said, well, you can pray anywhere. Well, that's true. He was right. You could pray anywhere. In fact, probably things like that have come out of my mouth. But there's something about sanctifying yourself or consecrating yourself to the side and saying, but we have purposed ourselves to pray here. God moved when people, people, plural, people got together to pray. You have to set yourself apart. Remember, sanctify means to be uncommon. You have to do something uncommon. We're not going to be able to do what commonly is done in America. If you want to look around and say, well, they do this and they do that, and, and nobody's doing this nowadays, Pastor. Tough. It's what God calls normal. Jesus gave a mild rebuke to the disciples when he called them up to gather together to pray. And he's praying, he's seeking God, and he looks up and they're snoring. And he says, could you not tarry even one hour? Oh, sweet Jesus, don't even come to the American church. I'm done with this. Hey, hey Brad, can we still sing? If you just come, maybe take that middle song that you were singing, the one you guys wrote. 
fact, why don't we stand up? I want to tell you one quick story, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to be dismissed.